right, friends. Greg Kogel here. Stand to Reasons, the show. And I'm with you again, live in the studio, lively in the studio, uh, and uh, open for your calls, too. I haven't given this number out for a while. The number is 855-243-9975. That's 855-243-9975. So you can call in to the show and talk to me live when I'm here live, which would be Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. Pacific time. Okay, 855-243-9975. By the way, if you're outside of the U.S., and we do get occasionally, occasionally get calls from uh, other places. I remember we had, like, calls from three different continents in one day, uh, which was cool. Uh, just dial um, the 562 area code, which is where we are here in, in uh, Southern California, and the number is 424 Eight two two nine. You'll need to dial the international code, which I think is one for us, right? Something like that. Five six two four two four eight two two nine. What we're going to do probably as we begin this hour, I have no callers on board, is we have a whole bunch of open mic calls. The open mic calls are when you call in when I'm not here and you leave a recording. You can do it either by calling a certain number, I'll give you that number in a minute, and leaving your question. Uh, or you can go online to our homepage under podcasts and the, the click live broadcasts and follow the prompts. And basically just start it up and you start talking and it's a recorded item. And by the way, if you call in uh, using the open mic feature and then I respond to it, I think we get back to you. Amy gets back to you. Uh, with a message that on this particular day we'll be airing the show that um, that uh, where Greg answers your 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 issue. So uh, maybe we shouldn't tell them that because we just have then they won't listen to the other. They got to keep listening and listening and listening, hoping there comes up. No, we know that we're going to be nice to you. So uh, anyway, that number that you could call if you'd rather do it do the open mic recording. Online is 857-DIAL-STR. Easy way to remember it, 857-DIAL-STR. Now, I never like those acronym things because I it's so hard to figure out the letters. So I'm just going to give you the number, 857-342-5787. 857-342-5787. And you'll get the open mic feature. So it's pretty easy. And we've got lots and lots. I got four pages of them here. So lots to to last me in for the next few weeks. And we'll be doing some extra shows. Since when I go out of town, we have to do some schedule some extra shows because of that. And, uh, and so we use the open mic calls and that uh, what a great idea. I'm not sure who came up. Was it Amy? Is that yours? Kyle? Oh, yeah, Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. Give yourself a raise. Great idea. Um, so let's go to open open my calls and um, and let's uh, let's Amanda has been uh, sent something to us a picture and it has a question so let's go to Amanda how about that and I'll do my best to uh, respond to the issue. Hi Greg and Amy, my name's Amanda. Uh, I have a question for you regarding visions of Mary. Um, I'm a relatively new Catholic. Uh, I became confirmed Catholic when I married my husband, uh, but was raised in a Protestant home and, uh, and really honestly have my foot in, in two camps. Um, but that's another story for another mm -hmm. day. Um, but over the last couple of years, um, there's been lots of discussion about 
you know, when Mary reveals herself through, um, like the, at the Magigoria or at, you know, different, um, different places around the world. And I have always had a healthy skepticism when it comes to that. However, just recently in our own parish, there was a vision of Mary during the Eucharist and, um, someone took a photo of it and it's striking. It's, it is very clear. It's Mary. Um, and it has circulated through our church and it's, it's really, um, quite remarkable. And it was in response to this young, uh, well, not young, like 30s year old, um, man whose father is quite ill. And this vision of Mary appeared, um, during the Eucharist. It's, it's, it's like a reflection in, in, um, one of the cups of Mary. And it's, like I said, it's striking. It's perfectly Mary. So, um, anyway, I got my wheels turning why Mary would reveal herself that way and why it wouldn't be Jesus. Um, curious to know, I know you're not Catholic, but (laughs) curious to know if you have any insight. Thanks so much, Greg. Bye-bye. Thank you, Amanda. It's a great call. Uh, and it's a little bit difficult in some ways to, to navigate this because of the way that people characteristically think about these kinds of things and, and, and from either side of the spectrum, whether Protestant or um, or Roman Catholic. I was rose, raised Roman Catholic, so um, I, I understand that that whole environment. I was in the Vatican I tradition. Um, I left Catholicism in the mid-60s, right around the time of Vatican II. I do not consider Vatican II to be an improvement on Roman Catholic theology at all. Nevertheless, uh, I have background in that. My brother was an altar boy, and I grew up with, with Latin Mass. Okay, so, like I said, Vatican I. Uh, Tridentine, all right. And I also have a picture that, Amanda, uh, you sent of that reflection that, as you put it, was, uh, your words were, it's very clear it's Mary, uh, or it's perfectly Mary, all right. Um, I think the two extremes that people might fall off on, given the theological divide between Protestants and Roman Catholics is that on the one side, if one can identify some supernatural element um, related to Mariology, okay, Mariology would be doctrines related to the person of Mary in the Roman Catholic Church, that this somehow validates or justifies the doctrine. All right. On the other side, I think it's a mistake. It's not enough to say, well, look at this event. Thousands of people saw this apparition. There were these healings that were associated with Mary, this apparition identified as Mary, that that we can quantify, we can document. Or here's a photograph. I got the photograph in front of me of the reflection. All right. Very clear. It's a Mary. Um, it's a mistake to say simply because there is some kind of miraculous manifestation regarding a claim that the claim itself is true. Okay, theological claims need to be assessed through theological means, and we have that means. And the means that we have, the means of theological revelation to assess these things that both Roman Catholics and Protestants agree is authoritative is the Bible. 
Now, Roman Catholics go beyond that. They say the Bible is authoritative, so is uh, holy tradition, so is the, uh, the, 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 the councils that uh, speak for the Church, and, um, and the magisterium, and also the Pope when he speaks from the chair, ex cathedra, okay, which actually happens r- rarely. But nevertheless, there are four different sources of uh, inerrant revelation. But since we both agree on one source, the Bible, then that ought to be allowed to weigh in on some of these other kinds of things. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to assess these kinds of things. I'm just talking about the methodology now. We're going to assess these supernatural apparitions of any kind, because there are all kinds of supernatural things that happen that happen in Protestant circles that are meant to affirm uh, certain speakers or faith healers or things like that. So all I'm saying right now is that it's supernatural is not enough to affirm the doctrine. Now, on the other side, I think the temptation is, is it's, it's actually kind of the same error. It's the belief that it's if it's supernatural, it does affirm it. Therefore, we have to deny that it, there's anything supernatural happened. And I think that's a mistake, too. Now, Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the future and that there are going to be false prophets uh, performing signs and wonders to mislead, if possible, even the elect. In other words, it's going to be very persuasive. There are going to be supernatural things that happen that are inconsistent with sound theology, that may mislead people, and it'll be very tempting even to genuine Christians. All right. Now, I'm not right now weighing in on these apparitions as falling in that category. I'm using the Matthew 24 to show that Jesus is warning us that supernatural manifestations are not enough to establish what is true. Okay, really key. So any assessment that we make based on alleged manifestations, um, has to be made from the text and not from the manifestation. That person really experienced it. There really was. Lots of people saw. We have television cameras showing it. We've got a photo of a reflection. That by itself is not enough. Okay. So let me go to the reflection for a moment, because I have the photo right in front of me. And Amanda, the way you put it is, it's very clear it's Mary. Well, I'm looking at the photo, and what's very clear to me is it seems to be an image of a woman. I don't know that that woman is Mary, and nobody does, because nobody knows what Mary looked like. It's just a woman. It's You know, it's kind of interesting that uh, when in near-death experiences, it's not unusual for people to see a, a person. an image of a person of light, all right? And when Christians have an image like that in a near-death experience, they immediately assume, or they characterize that as seeing Jesus. That's Jesus. But when a Hindu has it, they think they're seeing Krishna. Now, I'm not weighing in on one side or the other about the legitimacy of near-death experiences. What I'm saying is our theology is going to influence our assessment 
I have no reason to believe this image that looks like an image of a woman, as far as I could tell, I don't have magnifying glass, I got a picture of it, but you know, that looks like a like a a pencil drawing of a woman. I have no reason to think that that's a picture of Mary. It's just an image of a woman. Um, so that's one thing. We don't know it's Mary. Well, then why would that image be there? I don't know. There's all kinds of strange things that happen. You know, Jesus in a taco kind of thing. And I'm not speaking disparagingly. Th- these things have happened. There's an image of Jesus in the taco. And, uh, and 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 you have people that make a lot of that. Well, I don't know. There's an image of uh, John Kennedy in the lava rock in Maui, if you look at it the right way, from the right angle, with the right light. Wow, it looks a lot like him. Now, again, I'm not disparaging it. I'm just simply saying that um, there are lots of strange things that happen that look like things, but why would we invest that image, or whatever it is, with theological significance. And, but that's what's he, done here. Oh, that must be Mary. I don't know that it's Mary. Just like I don't know if it's Krishna or Jesus that people see when they die. They invest, they, 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 um, they interpret these things in light of prior considerations, all right? Um, if you want to know about Mary— the best thing to do is go back to the text and see what the text shows you. And it turns out, when you read about this magnificent woman in the Gospels, you do not get the sense of the role of Mary in Christian life that the Roman Catholic Church uh, gives to her. Um, in fact, when Jesus, Jesus, she wasn't, there was no evidence at all that she was remained a virgin her whole life. That is a dogma of the Catholic Church. It is not a biblical teaching. The Bible teaches that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and one of those brothers was James, who wrote the book of James, or I should say half-brother, to be precise. Oh, no, well, that, that must be a cousin. Well, there's no reason textually to call James Jesus' cousin when he's called his brother. It's only if you have a prior notion, a dogma, that won't allow Mary to have had other children, that forces you to interpret that passage in terms of cousin. All right? So the natural reading is Jesus had brothers and sisters. In fact, this is what people say. Look at, hey, this Jesus, look, he's making all these claims. We know his family. We know his brothers and sisters. He grew up here. Who is this guy who's putting on airs? kind of thing. So that's the natural reading of these passages that make these references. And by the way, there is a point at which Mary and the brothers and sisters of Jesus come to get Jesus, because they're worried about Jesus. And uh, Jesus, and they say, your brother and brothers and sisters, they're all out. They want you to come out. And he says, who are my brothers and sisters? You are. And so he, 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 he in a certain sense, he separates them himself from his own family. No, he's not disparaging his own family, but what he's not doing is exalting Mary, okay, as the Queen of Heaven, or something like that. So there is a tradition in the Roman Catholic Church, and now I am speaking theologically here, and I'm assessing the tradition regarding Mary in the Roman Church based on scriptural teaching, okay? 
By the way, the idea that Mary was assumed into into heaven. This is a this I think is a late nineteenth century uh, ex cathedra doctrine affirmed by a pope speaking from the chair. I could be wrong about the history of that, but there's no evidence at all scripturally that this is the case. And in fact, what we know about scriptural teaching is that all men die. Even Jesus died, for goodness sake. Now, there are, can there be exceptions? Sure. It does seem that you have two assumptions, Elijah and uh, who is the guy, Enoch, walk with God. You know, God can do whatever he wants. Do we have any reason to believe that happened to Mary? No. And what happens when you give that to Mary is it begins to exalt Mary above Jesus. And this is, I think, what has happened. And then it becomes natural to affirm those doctrines by looking at manifestations like this reflection in the glass as evidence that the doctrine that is extra-biblical is actually sound. And I don't think it is, because, yes, it is extra-biblical, and it, but it's worse than that, in my view. It's not just—it's it, contrary— to the kinds of things the Scripture teaches, uh, which puts Christ at the center. Look at the book of Colossians. It's all about Jesus at the center. Now, uh, when I was in Italy and in Rome, and in, it, 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 there's all kinds of uh, uh, statuary of Mary and Jesus, and Mary is always above Jesus. In fact, when you look closely at the statuary, the lips—these are bronze statues in many cases—the lips and the nipples, the breasts of Mary, are disfigured. Why are they disfigured? It's because people have rubbed the statue on Mary's face and on her breasts to get a blessing from the statue, or from Mary, presumably, by rubbing the statue, and over the years— it has actually defaced the image made of bronze. They rubbed the bronze off. Why is this happening? Because of a theology. So, uh, I, I, whenever there is an alleged manifestation of Mary that seems to put Mary in a position of primacy, especially with regards to Jesus— I have theological reasons to doubt its legitimacy. Not that it happened. There could have been a manifestation. This could be a perfect image of a woman displayed momentarily or whatever on that glass, but I have no reason to believe it's Mary. In fact, if it just shows up like that, what theological significance do we assign to it? We have no way to assign any theological significance to that. Now, what Jesus said, he was asked, by what authority do you cleanse the temple? He said, I'll show you my authority, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days. And the text then says he was speaking of the temple of his body, speaking of the resurrection. So Jesus is giving theological substance to the supernatural event that would come in the future. When he is raised from the dead, it shows what his authority is to do the things he did. If we just see an image here of of a woman on a piece of glass sitting on the um, on the table there where the Eucharist is being offered and the Mass is being said, what are we supposed to conclude from that? We can't conclude it's Mary. We conclude it, 
there's a picture of a woman that is manifest in the light in the reflection of that glass. And the theology that we conclude from it is what? There's nothing we can, can, can conclude. The theology about Mary is something we have to get from Scripture. And if it turns out that there's extra-biblical revelation, that would be the different means of revelation that the Roman Catholic Church makes claim to, that is inconsistent or contrary to the teaching of Scripture properly uh, understood, uh, then then the secondary source is, is not reliable. So that's my approach to these kinds of things. I, I don't see... The only reason... Okay, there are... And again, I'm not saying this disparagingly, I'm just making an observation. There are lots of Roman Catholics that love Mary more than they love Jesus. And they've been told, like I was when I was younger, and I don't know if this is still part of the communication, that that Je- Jesus will listen to Mary because Mary's his mother. And so if you ask Mary to ask Jesus, then Jesus will do what his mother says on your behalf. Wait a minute, doesn't Jesus love me? Why can't I just go directly to Jesus? Mary is—do you see the implication there? And again, maybe people will say, well, that isn't what our church teaches. Well, good, I'm glad that isn't the case. But that is the message that I received growing up, and I think that is what a lot of Roman Catholics believe with regards to Mary, and I think their hearts are much more attached emotionally to Mary than it is to Jesus. Does that sound right to you? Now, somebody say, well, you're, you Protestants, you have your heart more attached to whatever, your sacraments, your practices, or, or the Bible as a, rather than to Jesus. Well, if that's the case, then that's wrong, too. Jesus shouldn't be supplanted by anyone because he is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, who came to rescue us. He deserves our praise and our worship. He is the, is the preeminence of Christ. That's Colossians. He is the preeminent one. And anything that functions to supplant him is not of God. So there you go, Amanda. I hope that's helpful, and for the rest of you as well. Let's take a break. Greg Kogel here on Stand to Reason. Stay with us. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. 
STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All right, some of my bros are working around the country. Want to let you know, Alan Schleeman will be at Broadway Christian Church in Mattoon, Illinois, um, near my stomping grounds as a kid, roughly. I mean, from Chicago and central Illinois, and Mattoon is there, a little bit west. Uh, Broadway Christian Church, that will be a February 3rd, let's see, dash Sunday, February 5th. Oh, Friday through Sunday. February 3rd through February 5th for their apologetics conference. Alan's, man, he's he's on a roll, man. He's go, he's running around everywhere working so hard and doing such a great job. In fact, he he just we just released the Making Abortion Unthinkable STRU course that he taught. It's now available. Just letting you know, he does a great job. Did actually a meet and greet the teacher thing online last week and very well attended. <clears throat> and uh, people really appreciated engaging him on that. I think that's also archived somewhere. Um, I don't, I'm not the internet guy, so I don't know how that works, but just go to our website. I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere. Um, and there'll be more of those things going out. Anyway, that's Alan. Um, I mentioned uh, last hour that I'll be at uh, Value, or was it last segment? Uh, Valley View Christian Church in Littleton, Colorado on February 5, that's Sunday, and at the Desert Apologetics Conference in Palm Springs. And I'll be speaking at that conference on Saturday, February 11. Okay. Tim, Barnett uh, will be a guest speaker at the Faith and Reason Apologetics Conference in Woodstock, Virginia. Not the place that had the the big event. That was New York. 1969. I was 19. I remember that. I wasn't there. I was was at a bunch of stuff. It was kind of crazy, but not that one. Anyway, he'll be there uh, March 4th, Saturday, and March 5th, which is Sunday, the Reason Apologetics Conference in Woodstock, Virginia. All right. And uh, just a reminder, we are filling up in Dallas. We are still more than four weeks away. In fact, when you get this, it'll be exactly four weeks from the release of this podcast uh, that uh, our Friday night kickoff of Reality Dallas in North Dallas. And we are 75% full, sold out. So, um, Go to apologetics, realityapologetics.com. If you'd like to sign out, uh, sign up. We're going to sell this one out, too, as we've been doing all over the country with these wonderful conferences. And this is one. Don't miss this. Incidentally, if you can't make it, this is the conference that we are live streaming. So if you go to realityapologetics.com and would like to live stream it for yourself, for your family, for your study group, for your church, 
There are all ways to uh, package that and make that possible so you can get that conference no matter where in the world you happen to be. Okay. So we've been doing our uh, open mic calls, and the number for that is uh, 857-342-5787. We have, uh, let's go to Michelle. She's top of the list. That means she's been waiting the longest, and she has a question about yoga. Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm questioning, um, hopefully, Melissa, one of my wonderful heroes, and um, Mr. Kokul, too. You guys are both amazing. Thank you for doing this. And I just had a question about yoga. Curious how to handle yoga conversations, how to pass on yoga details. Um, I have a huge heart for my friends that are very much involved with yoga to see the connection of uh, the fact that Although it may be beneficial, and of course it's not, um, the gods of Hinduism are not real. Um, and truly, the stretching does help, but at the same time, not everything that helps is actually beneficial, according to, I believe, Corinthians, um, where even Paul, or is it Peter, that says, you know, I don't want to eat the meat if it causes anyone to stumble. So I, I'm in a predicament where I we work with Hindus, but I just I live over on in the States and I'm struggling so much with how many Christians that I do believe are truly lovers of the Lord and lovers of the word. It's just a huge confusion over how to handle yoga and how to understand yoga Um Biblically, and it's a it's it's a struggle for me because it's not necessarily something I I would love to get involved with um, other alternative stretches and stuff, and that's what I'm planning to do. But I am now convinced completely that I can't be involved with yoga um, at all, based on how many people I know are have been sucked into universalism and uh, oneness and even a lot of the teachings of yoga um, have really become syncretism, uh, two different types of belief systems combining, and it's very scary. Oh, was that it? Okay. (laughs) Sounds like you got cut off there, Michelle. Sorry about that. But I'm glad you called on this issue, and we have uh, been—it's been a long time since I've had a question on this. Um, And I guess what I want to say is there's a kind of split decision here, because you described yoga in two different senses. You talked about stretching being good for you, and then you talked about yogic practices— that uh, clearly had a spiritual dimension to them. And so uh, and that's because there, I mean, arguably is a difference. Now you're going to get between those two things. You're going to get different responses from different things, different people. I remember working at many years ago with Craig Hawkins. Uh, Craig is a broadcaster in Southern California, apologist, still playing his trade here, and a great brother that actually wrote some books about these kinds of things. And and Craig was, I think Craig was like a black belt or something like that. So he, he was into martial arts, but his advice regarding yoga was the same advice I'm going to pass on. And, the, and, and as I recall, his advice was that... Uh, is yoga okay? That depends. 
I know in my past that there are stretches that I've done uh, just because of sports that I was involved in and uh, competition that I did for many years. I was a competitive tennis player for almost 20 years. And uh, things to keep me stretched out and healthy that I look back now, oh, those were those were actually yoga poses. But I wasn't doing yoga. I was just stretching. All right. In my case, I was doing a stretch that had physical benefit for me that turned out to be a kind of stretch that can be employed in yoga, yogic uh, enterprise, in a yogic kind of uh, worldview circumstance, all right? Um, so I'm trying to think of a parallel here. You know, there's, there, it, it's, it's, it's possible to do s- certain things that in one context has no religious um, element to it, and the exact same behavior in another context does. A lot depends on intention. Okay? So yoga could be a means of stretching your body in certain ways and keeping it healthy. Okay? Yoga is also an asana. What's an asana? Uh, an asana is a spiritual exercise that helps lead you to enlightenment. Now, um, one of the things you mentioned, Michelle, was that um, that you've seen friends get sucked into the spiritual dimension by practicing yoga. It's probably because they went to a yoga class that featured the spiritual dimension and explained the benefits of yoga in not just physical terms, but in spiritual terms. And so when you do this particular exercise, it gets you it accomplishes a certain spiritual end, okay? And that your friends became syncretistic, and syncretistic is when you're synchronizing two different things. You're blending them together. You're taking Christianity and blending kind of an Eastern religion into it. Now, these don't really fit together, but nevertheless, people try to make them fit, especially if they don't have a clear understanding of classical Christianity. And uh, and in the process, get sucked in to the other religion. And this happened with the Jews. God made a lot of laws to keep the Jews separate from the Gentiles, culturally. Okay? And because if they didn't stay culturally separate, they would adopt certain practices that had religious significance and then drift in to the false religions through the syncretism of trying to mix them together, which, by the way, is exactly what happened. It's precisely what happened to the Jews. They became syncretistic, and they drifted into these other religious practices and adopting these other religions. So they had, they had you know, the temple to Yahweh, and then they had an idol to Baal. A little bit of each. Polytheism. Okay, so I am sympathetic to the danger here. Okay, and uh, the, I guess the question here, and, and, and one's conviction about this, like yours, Michelle, about how you respond to this is 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 entirely. Um, I'm going to weigh my words here. Um, has an it has has an individualistic. It's, it's going to be different for different people. Okay, let me clarify that because I'm not trying to be relativistic here, since my conviction is a person can do yogic stretches without doing yoga as a spiritual exercise and asana to accomplish some Eastern religion enlightenment. 
you can do one without participating in the other. I'm comfortable doing yoga, if you want to call it that, doing some of these things. Um, and I don't worry about the spiritual side because I'm not doing the spiritual thing. But for people who have had experiences with Christians who started going to a yoga class and got sucked in to a false religion, and this is what you described, Michelle, you don't want anything to do with it, and I'm absolutely fine with that. So um, that's why I say this is a kind of a split decision. There is a superficial way of practicing yoga, at least some forms of yoga, that are meant for stretching. But then there are other forms of yoga that the positions, the physical positions and the things that are going on, are specifically meant to induce a spiritual result, to to access the kundalini spirit at the bottom of the spine or something like that. Well, then you're practicing yogic religion, not some stretching enterprise. And, uh, you know, where's the line? Uh, people have to decide for themselves. I, I, the, the exercises I did, I never had any concerns about whether I was compromising my spirituality by doing the stretches I was doing, even though they showed up in some yoga books. But if you join a yoga class, I suspect there's more going on than stretching. I think, I suspect, never been in a yoga class, but I suspect if, the, if it's a yoga class, rather than like a, a physical training class that has different types of stretches and some might show up in a yoga book. If it's a yoga class, I suspect the people in the class are committed to yoga on a much deeper spiritual dimension. And so therefore, what comes along with the package is going to be the spiritual goods. And that's why I say, Christians, forget about that. Now, if you are a Christian and you want to join a yoga class, okay, be forewarned. Because it may be that what you're doing is you're exposing yourself to a, a spiritual dimension and a spiritual way of thinking that is hostile to Christianity. When I say hostile to Christianity, they might think Christians are fine. I'm talking about ideologically hostile, that the worldview is inconsistent with the Christian worldview. It's a different way of understanding reality. It's a different story of reality. Okay, and that's why sometimes you have people getting involved in these kinds of enterprises, and they're Christians, and they start believing in reincarnation because it's part of that package. Well, reincarnation doesn't do any work in Christianity. It it doesn't fit. It's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer, right? It's like two different systems. But when Christians get this odds and ends of different views, and they have odds and ends of Christian views, it's easy for them to get confused. So the safe bet is don't do yoga. Stretch, work out, cross-train, pump iron, do whatever you want, but don't do yoga proper. Now, of course, you understand when I say that, I'm saying that to be safe, right? Because there's stretches you could do that maybe yogic, but you're not participating in this spiritual dimension. All right. So enough said on that. Okay, let's go to break, and uh, we'll come back with more of your questions after this. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. 
It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. All right, final segment here. Um, we have two questions that, uh, that kind of go together. So I wanted I want to I want to take the first first and the second second. Okay, the simple one first. That's Nina, and then we'll have Brian uh, right after Nina because Nina's asking about. They both have to do with prophecy, and when I say prophecy, you know, I'm talking about prophecy in the Old Testament related to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, um, so let's hear from Nina first, and uh, oh, I'm sorry, Nina. I'm mispronouncing Nina, and this has to do with Isaiah. Okay, Nina. Hi, Greg. This is Nina from South Georgia. My question is about a prophecy about Jesus. Hosea 11, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. And Matthew references that uh, in Matthew two fifteen, where... It says, this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. How do they know that that was a prophecy about Jesus? Because as it goes on in verse 2 of chapter 11, but the more I called to him, the farther he moved away from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. I know Matthew referenced that, and the Holy Spirit let him know that it was a prophecy concerning Jesus, but it just seems like that's an obscure passage, and looking around uh, at the context of that passage, how do you get the um, conclusion that it was a prophecy about Jesus? Right. Thank you. Oh, Nina, thank you. And your voice is familiar. I think we've talked before, so it's nice to hear from you again. And um, I have wondered about this passage in Hosea too. Uh, in Hosea also, that would be Hosea 11, verse 1. I have it in front of me, and uh, you read it. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then, verse 2, uh, then Egypt goes south. I'm sorry, Israel goes south. Actually, that's they went north. It's kind of a bad pun right there, but when they go south, that means they go bad. 
but they actually went north from Egypt to—I guess you get it. The point I'm making is, um, wow, this looks odd. And how do they know? How did what Matthew know that this is about, in a certain sense, it's a prophecy about Jesus, okay? What I almost said was prefigures Jesus, and that's going to be the substance of my answer. But how did he know is a prophecy about? And now I have a book on biblical interpretation, and I can, it, it, it's, it's really a great book because it's like a textbook. Um, uh, reading the Bible for all it's worth, that's a really pop, good popular version, okay? But this one's a, a more of a textbook, covers a lot more ground. And when I was reading that textbook, I got the answer to this question. But I can't think of the name of that textbook. I think it's uh, something biblical interpretation, something, something. I got it for a class, and it's great, and I wish I could tell you what it was so you could get it too. The point they made, though, the, the simple answer for Unina is how did Matthew know is because Matthew was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw was a typology of Jesus in the history of Israel. Now, a typology, or a type, is where you have a representation of something that is actual and historical in the Old Testament that really is is meant to represent something in the future. A classic example is the Old Testament sacrificial system, which the writer of Hebrews spends a lot of time describing and explaining as being uh, a system that prefigures what Jesus will do, uh, where that system was partial, what Jesus will do is complete, all right? Uh, also in Hebrews, you have Melchizedek being characterized as a certain type of priest who is prefigures or represents a priesthood that Jesus himself falls into. So one could say that Jesus, that the passage about Melchizedek, who I think was an historical individual, um, that passage is is also points into the future, prophetically, using that concept more broadly, to Jesus of Nazareth, who now is a priest forever according to that order, not the Levitical order, but to the Mel- Melchizedek's order, okay? Um, so those are two examples of what I'm talking about. What you see in Hosea 11.1 is a typology. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Yes, that's what God did with Israel. He called them out to rescue them. Now, it turns out with Jesus, Jesus went to, to Egypt to be rescued from Herod, and after Herod was dead, then he came back. And what Matthew sees in this passage in Hosea is a a typology, a representation. But it call it calls it the the how does Matthew put it? So, thus the uh, the prophecy was fulfilled. Let me just find it. Matthew is it Matthew two? Yeah, this Matthew, Mark, Luke. Oh, I didn't have this marked for us. I had the Hosea passage marked, but. Oh, my goodness gracious. There it is. Matthew 2, 15. 
This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So I would see that fulfillment as a fulfillment of a typology, not an explicit statement about Jesus, like we find in other prophecies. We have a similar situation with Joseph, because there's a, there is a very clear parallel between Joseph and Jesus because Joseph was rejected by his brethren, and in the process of the rejection, was put in a position where he could rescue the nation. And this is precisely what we see in Jesus' life. And so there is a typology where something, in a, a historical event in Joseph's life, is fulfilled, scare quotes if you will, in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who was like Joseph in that fashion. Okay, so there are times when you have a straight, straightforward prophetic utterance about uh, Messiah, like where will he be born? Be, be born? Oh, Bethlehem. Okay. Other times you have less straightforward references, like Psalm twenty-two, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Is the way it starts. But then you have this description of what looks like a crucifixion from the perspective of the person being crucified. And it's, that's pretty obvious, I think, when you read through it, but it doesn't say at the beginning of the psalm, this is a prophecy about Messiah. This was understood by the Jews to be messianic, but that's the way prophecy sometimes is. It's veiled, okay? And then when it's fulfilled, we get a clearer take on it. Now, is that a little bit oosey-goosey and squishy? Yeah, it is. And I'll get more into that particular fact, um, facet uh, with this next um, this next question from Brian. But just to close the loop on this, I think the best way to think of a, Hosea 11.1 1, is that verse represents something that happened in the history of Israel that is typological of what Jesus, what was happened to Jesus thousands of years later. Now, what follows in verse 2, 3, and 4 of Isaiah, or Hosea 11 is not typological, obviously. It's just this one line. Okay, let's hear from uh, Brian. Hi, Greg. My name is Brian, and I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio. Hmm. I was reading uh, my morning devotions and started looking through the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus and uh, just started with, Isaiah seven fourteen, uh, a child be born of a virgin is called Emmanuel, and I started noticing that all of the prophecies that I looked at so far, I understand there's about three hundred fifty. Uh, uh, I can't find any that specifically. Like if I was just reading through, I would say, "Oh, that's talking about Jesus." It seems like they're all talking about. Uh, something that's happening at that time, and then they were later borrowed to use to make a case for Jesus. So I'm just wondering how how is that different from uh, proof texting and just making a case by going back and pulling something out of Scripture and then applying it to a future event? Um, how, how is it determined that those were prophetic uh, uh, words about Jesus? That's my question. Thanks for all you do. 
Oh, thank you, uh, Brian. And this is, you can see how this question is kin to Nina's. Um, and I mentioned when I was talking about Nina's question, how sometimes this is a little squishy, and that's true. Now, this is why from an apologetics perspective, I think we have to be careful. We can't just willy-nilly grab things here and there that characteristically or classically and maybe even accurately are are said to be messianic prophecies. Um, when to the the in, in a, to the to the critic, he's going to say, "Wait a minute that that doesn't say anything about Jesus." Isaiah seven fourteen is an example of that, uh, and um, you know, that's the virgin shall give birth. Uh, I ironically, I just read a lot about Isaiah seven fourteen. And following, and it's not just Isaiah 7, but also Isaiah chapter 9, and, you know, these are Christmas verses, whatever. But there's a whole lot going on there, and sometimes in prophetic utterances, what you have is you have, you know, a double double thump or whatever. You've had double fulfillment, that something's happening here. But you look at the context and the wording that all of this wasn't really fulfilled thoroughly in that time in that way. And Isaiah seven fourteen, a virgin shall give birth. Oh, that's an Alma. Well, that's just a young woman. Well, that's the Hebrew word. Yeah, but when the when the Jews translated that passage into Greek in the Septuagint, which was f- before the time of Christ, they uh, they 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 used the word for virgin, the Greek word for virgin, not for young woman. Um, to translate that passage. I think it's called Parthenos or something like that, but in any, any event. So there seems to be insight that others had at the time, especially the Jewish scholars of the time, don't ask me how they have the insight, but that they understood these kinds of things to be referencing the one that is to come. And by the way, there are lots of examples of that, because think about Herod. Herod was asked by the Magi, where is the king to be born? Also, he goes to his scholars, and they go back, and they find the passage that says, okay, Bethlehem. So there was a sense that there were passages that were clearly speaking about Messiah in the future. There were other passages that seemed to be hinting at it, and it wasn't until the fulfillment that we see the connection between them, okay? Now, I'm not going to argue my case based on Hosea 11.1, but I'll go to Psalm 22. I'll go to Isaiah 53, I'll go to, what is the the Bethlehem passage, and a whole bunch of others. So I, what, what I, th- I think the warning here is that we can't, we have to be careful with the 350 or whatever prophecies fulfilled in the life of Christ, because some of them don't seem to be obviously so. A case can be made for a lot of these. I, I think a case can be made for the Isaiah 7.14, but it's a case that has to be made. It's not one that's just obvious. And, and I can see how some people say, wait a minute, it looks like they're, they're, they're pulling things out of context. They are proof-texting, as you pointed out, Brian. And I think that's a fair criticism, right, which is why we have to be careful. Now, of course, this is not true about everyone. It's interesting. Think about the end of Luke where Jesus is talking to the disciples, resurrected Christ, walking on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. And he says, man, you haven't got it. Don't you realize that from the beginning, the text said, indicated at least, 
that the Messiah must die and rise again from the dead. Gee, where does it say that? Well, then Jesus wanted to explain to them from the different texts in the Old Testament on that converse, in that conversation on the road to Emmaus, the connection there. We see in Acts chapter 2 that, uh, that the giving of the Holy Spirit was prophesied by Joel. He'll pour his Spirit on all men. This is a fulfillment of that. And it's happening because David said, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Well, David's still in the grave. He did decay. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus who rose from the dead. So ex post facto, after the fact, we can look back on some of these passages and see a strong connection. Um, but uh, there are plenty, in my view, of things that, you, that, that seem to tie up very, uh, unambiguously prophetic words in the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, that we have plenty of ground to stand on, solid ground, uh, to make our case for Jesus being the Messiah of Hebrew Scriptures, even if some seem to be a stretch. All right, we'll let those go. we still got plenty more that aren't. Hope that helps, Brian and Nina. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now. <laughs>